Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 160. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week, Trifecta 12. Trifectas are specials that we run now and again. We pick a theme and we feature three different stories by three different story writers, read by three different storytellers. The theme of this trifecta, two heads are better than one, stories of dynamic duos and capable couples. Simon and Garfunkel, Sonny and Cher, Bernie Madoff and Satan. It takes two to make a thing go right. Without Jackie Chan's keen detective work and high-flying kicks, Chris Tucker would have never been able to say the darndest things. Without Eve, Adam would never have been able to experience the joys of fruit and shame. You remember the movie Total Recall. In that, Hauser was just a man. Quoto, just a mutant abomination, glistening and furled up in his stomach. But in their conjoined effort, they reached out to a little place in each and every one of us, inspiring and reminding us to believe in ourselves, and to start the reactor, and to free Mars. So on that note, we're going to start things off with a story called Never Forget Some Things by G.A. Simonis. Mr. Simonis was weaned on fairy tales and remembers reading his first space opera when about nine years old. An active writer and blogger, his fictions appeared in Raygun Revival, Raygun Radio, and Horizons Magazine. His technical non-fiction ranks in the top five most read on Java World, and he's a Liberty Hall writer's denizen. His writing blog can be found at gsemonis.livejournal.com, which we'll have linked in our show notes. So, without further ado, Never Forget Some Things, by G.A. Simonis. Never forget some things. Consider the other night. The space monkey and I were working our card scam on a backwater planet and had three yahoos strung deep into the cards. Imagine having a card partner that shuffles and deals on the tabletop while sneakily shuffling another deck with his feet. It boggles the mind with possibilities, even after all these years. So, one second I was working a carefully constructed flush. Next, the biggest yahoo twisted my arm behind me. His two buddies snatched up the space monkey, each grabbing an arm and a leg. Being real careful, he couldn't use any of his four hands. (laughs) Yeah, they thought they were real bright. So I shouted out, Now, wait here, you folks don't want to go hurting the last survivors of Arendani 4, do you? Shuts them up almost every time. The space monkey winked at me and nodded. The big one twisted my arm an octave higher. Old man, nobody survived that battle. Humans and space monkeys, they all died. I snorted. (laughs) You think so, huh? Well, you must know that because you were there. 
The three exchanged glances and I took my cue. You see, my space marine regiment was tunneling a moon base at Eridani 4 when the space monkey ships hyperzoned on top of us. Not enough gravity on that moon to stop it. The space monkey spread eagle in midair between the other two, just stared at me, tail whipping with impatience. Oh, the space monkeys swarmed our tunnels. The battle raged for three days, over and under the moon's surface. Finally, it came down to me and him, right there, the very last survivors. And we met on the surface to finish it. He and I were equals in combat, even in hand-to-hand, to-hand-to-hand. As you've noted, he's got a couple extra. The two holding the space monkey tightened their grip. The space monkey gave me a dirty look. In the end, I disarmed him and pressed my vorp blade into his gut. We were so close I could smell the fur on his belly starting to smoke. And then we... Well, we called it a draw, standing there on the killing fields of Arendani 4. And that, you young pups, is why today there's a peace treaty betwixt humans and space monkeys. There were shouts of protest. Wait a minute, you saying you had him? You had your sword in his gut? Why didn't you just finish him? Humans could have been on top. The space monkey just whipped his tail and rolled his eyes at me. He hates it when I drag the story out. (laughs) We had those yahoos. I knew it, and the space monkey knew it, as he slowly raised a stolen blaster from behind, as only a space monkey could. Gentlemen, Never, ever forget the prehensile tale. Youth today, they just don't know their history. Our next story is called Behind Eye, A History by Douglas Warwick. Doug is a writer and editor originally from Dayton, Ohio. He lives with his wife, Nam Yangyu, in South Korea, where they teach kids to speak and read English in the hopes of building a small army of devoted fans of weird literature. Go check out his seldom updated blog at www.douglasfwarwick.com. The story is read to you by the buttery man voice of Cheyenne Wright. Cheyenne Wright provides the beautiful colors of the Hugo Award-winning graphic textbook Girl Genius, which is nominated for Best Graphic Story in the Hugos again this year. He's also the voice of Othar Trig Vassen, Gentleman Adventurer, for the related controversial radio plays. In his off hours, he's done freelance art for Deadlands, Savage Worlds, Alton Brown, and the Star Trek Online MMO. And when he's done, he peddles his buttery man voice to anyone that will have him. Recently, he's begun to design his own line of badges for law enforcement agencies that never existed. The first one is a Lone Star and Gear-shaped Tesla Rangers badge and is available via his website, www.arcanetimes.com. So without further ado, Behind Eye, A History by Douglas Warwick. Warwick. 
There is a man whose pupils are full of moths, dry moths, dying moment by moment and collecting in drifts behind his eyes, deep down in that secret and endless world behind his face. A blue desert world populated only by the moths and a timid hermit with no eyes of his own who only leaves his moth-wing hut to scoop up handfuls of dead moths and shovel them into his mouth. There was a cautious status quo there once, in this windless world of behind-eye. The timid old hermit wandered and ate, and he was mostly happy, if not lonely. But there was a change. The blind hermit found an infant in one of the heaps of dead moths. Some wretched baby born skinless, born without lips so that its teeth stuck out from its face like fence posts, born without a nose so that the skin of its face slid without interruption from its eyebrows down to the rough ridge of its upper gum line, and his slit nostrils opened his skull like a sudden sinkhole. And when the moths who were alive saw the infant, they saw a lizard-like horror, red and screaming, and they feared it. For moths fear few things as they do lizards. The hermit could not see those things, because he had no eyes of his own. So he took the infant back to his moth-wing shack, and he kept him warm and fed him dead moth soup and in a few years the infant had grown into a lipless, skinless, noseless lizard boy, red and screaming. And this is what life is like now in the world behind some guy's eyes. The hermit worships the lizard boy as a god, but the lizard boy leads him through the moth drifts and provides for him in all the ways that a man without eyes cannot provide for himself. The moths regard the lizard boy, the howling, mewling, gurgling, skinless, lipless, noseless, red and screaming lizard boy as a devil. Grave eater, they call him, and the meat golem, because he has no skin, and because the moths are Jewish. In moth mythology, the lizard boy is a negative aspect of the god of Abraham who exists to define suffering with his screaming and with his grinding, slobbering teeth and his skinless awfulness. The lizard boy is aware of none of this. Life is very painful for him. He often wants to die, but he loves the hermit so much. He watches him sleep at night, risking all over, nerve-burning, rip-tending agony just to use his skinless fingers to brush away a strand of the hermit's hair from where it sticks at the spit, sticky corner of the old fellow's mouth and tuck it behind his ear. He does not know the word father, but he wishes he had some name for this perfect, fragile, sweet old thing who saved him from certain suffocation in the moth drifts. Now the moths watch him from the corners of the shack's single window. They do not make any sound. In just a few seconds, they will kill the lizard boy while the hermit sleeps. They do not need him anymore. 
They do not need a reminder of suffering. They understand now, and they have wept and prayed and howled, Elohim, Elohim, at the sky. And they have thanked God for the lesson that they have learned. And they have vowed to do away with this totem of suffering now made obsolete. They have planned this night for years, passing down the stratagems through generations. Their fear, their work, their prayers spanning a million, no, no, a billion three-day lifespans. And today, today they will lay to rest the aspirations of their forefathers. Today they earn the legacy of their ancestors. They have crafted sharp teeth for themselves from the tiny crystal bones of their dead and mounted them in their dry mouths. Was it painful? You're goddamn right it was. Setting a crystal spine into their soft, tiny mouth gums, drawing fountains of their own blood. God, how they screamed and cried. But they are almost ready. In just seconds, they will be ready. No. Now. Now they are ready. They dive. There is blood, and there are broken wings and moth powder scattered in poison clouds. The lizard boy bawls and screams and swats and chomps with his grinding, slobbering fence post teeth, but theirs are sharper and faster and more precise. They shred him. The hermit wakes to the sounds of screaming and he cries out. And he wants to know what is happening to his poor lizard boy, his miracle godson. What is happening? What is happening? My god, what is happening? He stands and he swats and he stomps, wading through the helpless, ragged screams and armies of moths he cannot see and he is useless. There is so much terrible noise. There is war. And it is not over for a very long time. At home tonight, the man behind whose eyes exists the moths and the hermits and the dying red and screaming lizard boy, he rummages beneath the sink until he finds the bright white bottle of Clorox. He says to himself that this will probably hurt an awful lot, and he steals himself. This must be done. At the office tomorrow they will talk. They will say it was an accident, an awful tragedy. Poor man, blinded like that. He should sue. They will not know the details. They will construct the story themselves. That is what they will say, but that will happen later. For now, he unscrews the bottle, and he pours, and pours, and pours, until that sad and noisy world behind his eyes is eaten by a great white flood.
And our final story for this trifecta special, Sock Heroes by M. Thomas. M. Thomas's short fictions appeared in LCRW, Strange Horizons, On Spec, Lone Star Stories, and other venues. Currently, she's a teacher. I'm dedicating the production of this story to Drabblecast fan Moon Owl, who helped us track down Miss Thomas so that we could ask to buy the story. If you enjoy this one, you have her to thank for it. Thanks, Moon Owl. The story is read to you by Vinny Bove, who's a graphic designer living in New York City. He's been an avid Drabblecast listener since last year, and recently became a monthly subscriber, since, you know, it's really, really worth it to get such great fiction every week. Hey, his words, not mine. Joining Vinny in the story is his own dynamic duo partner, his fiancée, Lacey Clapperich. Lacey's a photographer, also living in New York. If you live in the Big Apple and you need headshots, portraits, or other photographic goodness, check out LaceyJoyPhotography.com. That puppy will also be in our show notes, if you're away from the computer at the moment. So, without further ado, we bring you Sock Heroes by M. Thomas. He faded. In his youth, he had been neatly stitched, smelling of new cotton and plastic wrap. His neck had been firm, not wadded with washings and the loss of supportive nylon threads. He had been a tube sock to know then, with his bands of red and gold, his toe of royal blue. Now he faded, day after day, brought out of the drawer only when all the other socks had been used up. His wife still admired him, though. She, who had once been so fine, his perfect twin except for a slight turn in the toe that had seemed to him a coquettish bit of roguery. They had spent nights jumbled up together under the argyles, what are you doing down there? hiding giggles in their fabric as they lay together. The other socks would kindly turn a blind eye, with perhaps the slightest knowing smirk. They survived countless washings together, braving the terror of the rushing water with the assumption of immortality that all youngsters enjoyed. They survived the bad times over and over, searching for one another's toes as they were tossed around in the heat of a thousand hells in the dryer, twining around one another as soon as they came to rest at the end of a cycle, their static cling a remnant of youth that pulled them back together time and time again. But now he was old, now he faded. He had listened to the whispers, passed along from the t-shirts to the underwear and up through the old bureau to the winter mittens. He had seen the thing they spoke of, the great maw in the dryer that sucked at them all for a meal. He tried to reassure the newer socks, told them stories of his younger days, pointed out his frayed parts as testament to the fact that the dryer could be survived, and had been. But they were young frightened. They would not listen. They crouched down in the back of the drawer to escape notice. Nothing could be done about the situation, though. It was what it was. At least that's what he believed, until the day the new brown woolens came. He and his wife smiled at them. They turned a blind but knowing eye to the two lovers, allowed them to nestle down in the bottom of the drawer and whisper sweet things to one another, giggling. The new socks weathered their first wash well, shrieking with laughter as they were whirled around and around. Then, in the bottom of the dryer, 
things fell quiet. The new wife clearly felt it. What happens now? She asked worriedly. Why is everyone so quiet? I don't know, said her husband. Nothing to worry about, said the old socks. Nothing but the maw, said the middle-aged socks, still new enough to be frightened. The maw? The wife's voice became shrill. What is the maw? But there was no more speaking, for they began to tumble and the heat pressed against them. The old sock went through the motions, keeping a careful eye on his wife, tumbling as near to the door as he could. He tossed the odd comment to an old t-shirt he hardly saw anymore, sympathized about a tear with a pair of briefs. Then, when the heat was highest, the maw appeared. A tingly blue ring of electricity surrounding the black nothing of an inner void. The socks shrank back from it, crowding one another against the walls, clumping up in groups for the safety of weight and substance. The maw was small. It could only devour so much. Everything would have been fine had not one of these clumps brushed up against the new socks, knocking them apart. The little brown wife cried out as she drifted towards the crackling edges of the void. The old tube sock near the door unraveled a little around the edges at the sound of her cry. His wife glanced at him from across the dryer, frightened. Do something, the brown sock husband cried. Please, someone. The old sock looked at his wife. Together, they were all that remained of last summer's socks. The others had gone by the wayside, into the maw or his dust rags. He himself had been feeling the frustration of age, constantly struggling to keep himself anchored to the calf, yet always losing the battle against his hoary old support nylon. He saw in his wife's eyes that she knew him well. He saw in her the way she had been, new and bright and witty. He saw that the brown socks had a chance such as they'd had. She saw his intention and nodded. I'll go with you. No, he called out as she tumbled by. Stay as long as you can. They need someone wise to remind them how to be good socks. I've never been wise. I've always just been a sports accessory. She curled her toe in unhappy acquiescence. He eyed the brown sock, clinging to the rim of the maw desperately, a slender thread caught in the button of a pair of boxers, the only thing keeping her from flying away. The boxers, desperate not to go with her, were working their fabric to unbutton themselves. The old sock eyed the electric void. Then, with a flip of his toe, he flung himself to the place where socks disappeared blocking the void long enough that the little brown sock was able to fling herself away. As he went, he saw his wife looking at him, and the red thread around his toe curled into a peaceful smile. Perhaps, he thought, this is the place all socks are meant to go, in the end. At the end of the cycle, the other socks rested together in silence awed and humbled by the sacrifice of a braver sock, a nobler sock, a heroic sock for all time. His story would be whispered about for years in drawers and eventually spread to the underwear, who, of course, claimed it to have been one of their own. But everyone knew the truth, and the legend would carry on.
Well, that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. Who's the lipless, skinless lizard person in your life? Who's your space monkey sidekick? When it starts raining hard and the flood hits, who's the sock by your side walking up into the ark? Go give him a reminder of how much you appreciate him. Then get out there and start the reactor, you sons of bitches. You think Mars is going to free itself? Story feedback time. A couple weeks ago, I ran a story called Go Into the Chapel by Sandra O'Dell. About a southern wedding between an alien and a debutante. People really love this one. Rich Mazur said, I think Odell's best achievement with this story is the image I got from the perspective of the bride and groom looking out over the wedding guests. On the left are a bunch of weird-ass aliens dripping slime and burbling, and on the right, a bunch of weird-ass humans picking their nose and gossiping. The bride-groom-side seating arrangement inherent in weddings was a great idea and a brilliant opportunity for the author. Talia said, I really enjoyed the juxtaposition of southern culture and alien weirdness. I think that's one of the main things that makes the story as fun as it is. I mean, you could stage the same story in New York City, and I don't think it'd come off as a fraction as playful as it did. There's something about Southern culture, or should I say perceptions of it, that combined with the outlandish scenario adds a lot of humor. Good times. Good times, indeed. Hey, here's some good times. A little promo for something vaguely concerning us. Hello. I'm Clinton from Comedy Forecast. Did you know that every 60 seconds, a minute is lost? It's true. A minute where someone, somewhere, could be listening to an outstanding speculative fiction podcast. But sadly, they don't know where to turn. Yes, the interwebs are full of directories listing every podcast under the moon. But how is a listener ever to hope to find quality shows in such a maelstrom of names and bad show artwork? Won't you help? All it takes is for you to go to ParsecAwards.com and nominate your favorite speculative fiction podcast, like the one you're listening to right now. Okay, you're listening to me right now, but stop being so literal. You know what I mean. <clears throat> Don't delay. Do it now. You only have until June 1st. Go to ParsecAwards.com and nominate your favorite speculative fiction podcast. That's P-A-R-S-E-C Awards.com. With your nominations, there's hope. Even hope that I'll win an award for this dramatic plea. Thank you. Parsec Awards. They're like the Oscars of podcasting. You ought to go nominate your favorites. And that would be us. Hey, over here. Yep, that's us. And maybe one of these days we'll get a nod for all the grueling work we do as a paying slush market that works late nights to pump out weekly content. It's five in the morning right now, people. I'm just doing this for the fangirls. Speaking of which, Kick-Ass Donor of the Week this week is... Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey lives with his yogic wife, Claire, in Belfast, North Ireland. He used to be an evil scientist who probed human hearing by locking people in soundproof booths. Then he tortured them with electronic beeps until they begged for mercy. He subsequently turned to the light side and now he tortures himself by working with computers for a living. Jeff says he loves the Drabblecast. After checking out only a couple shows, he callously put our hosting bandwidth to the test by downloading our entire episode archive in one go. That's right, people, we do have an episode archive. Just go to Drabblecast.org and download them all. 
He's been sequentially working his way through them all and is disturbingly addicted. He says thanks for all the hard work and for sharing extraordinary stories with us strange listeners. Hey, thank you for donating, Jeffrey. Your cash went to pay for an author's creative work, and we were able to do it in audio. Well worth it, IMO. And you there at home, you can help us out too. We've got an automatic five bucks a month subscription option. You can sign up from our main page, drabblecast.org. Or if you're afraid of commitment, you can just chuck us a one-time donation. We've got an option for that too. We appreciate anything you can give. We'd literally have to hang our hats up if you didn't. This whole shebang is riding on you, my friend. So we have this ongoing weekly 100 character story contest going on where all you win is honor and a twat on Twitter. But there's a lot to be said for pride and twats. And there are a lot of entries. You can find all this off our discussion forums linked off our main page. And you can also friend us on Twitter and get the winners early each week if you want. The winner this week is Muncie. And here's his story. You never did know when to keep your mouth shut, he gloated. When I tried to argue the point, my lungs filled up with water. Yikes, that'll prove your point. So yeah, you hear the music, you know that's our show, but don't turn us off yet. Special thanks to the guy responsible for the kick-ass episode artwork this week, which you were definitely eyeing earlier in the show, weren't you? That's the product of Bo Kyer, our house art guy, who, as always, pounces on any opportunity to draw blind old men, skinless toddlers, and moths. Check out his awesome skills at bokyer.com. And we'll see you next week, weirdos. Remember, this getup is produced under Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, just share it. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marshman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to never forget the prehensile tale. The bartender shouts last round, an hour ago this place was loaded, and noise filled the room like the smoke. Laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke.